So this evening, in a way, I would like to to put some context, some more fleshing out, in a way, from what Stephen has already talked about, the astonishment, and this morning he brought the what is this. And so I would, I would, I'm going to kind of touch several things, but because they very much are what is part of this cultivating of perplexity, this question, you're sitting there, what is this, what is it? I mean, this is the oddest thing to do, isn't it? You know, I don't know, 10 times a day or more, whenever I tell people to do this, you know, I feel, well, you know, I always kind of feel, well, you can do it, but still, it's a bit weird, isn't it? But it works. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, we do it not because we want to do the weirdest things to do, but because it has worked. And so in a way, this question, what is this, is very much within a kind of a larger context. The first context, of course, is Zen, is very much part of the Zen tradition. And all of you, I mean, some of you have come from uh, various different Zen traditions. So that's what I would like to talk a little about first. The fact that now it's, it's known as Zen, which is actually the Japanese pronunciation. In Chinese, it's Chan. In Korean, it's Son. And these traditions have whole, over time, kind of develop various different tendencies, various cultural, various forms, various way of being with Zen in a different way. So some people who might have come from the Japanese tradition or from the Chinese tradition might say, well, you know, Zedo, why don't they do this? And why don't they do that? <laughs> and it's because in a way, and I think that's what's beautiful about Buddhism and meditation, how it goes into a culture, a history, a time, and how it's transformed. And so, of course, first then appeared, came, was Buddhism who came to China, and then over time, the Chinese did their own thing with the Buddhist tradition. And what is interesting is that there too, over time, historically, uh, Zen was very prominent between the 8th century to the 13th century. And then Zen in China, Chan, kind of in a way went again through its own transformation. So nowadays, uh, in the Chinese Chan tradition that you'll find, very often it is together with the Pure Land tradition. And the question you will more likely to be asking there would be, who is reciting the Buddha's name? Because in the Pure Land tradition, you recite the name of Amitabha Buddha. And so then the two together, then you have this question, who is reciting the Buddha's name? Then, of course, the Zen tradition, the Chan, came to Korea, and then it went to Japan. And in Japan, again, over time, there was various transformation. And then you started to have the Soto tradition, then you started to have, you, you had the Soto and the Rinzai tradition. And the Rinzai tradition is a tradition you use a koan. Because in a way, this question, what is this? is very much part of a koan, the main point of a koan. But in Japan, over time, toward the 15th, 16th century, uh, Zen Buddhism kind of started to decline a little. And then arose great master Hakuin. And through his kind of trying to reawaken, reinvigorate, refresh the tradition, then he's the one who started to create 
this uh, study of the series of koans. So in the Japanese Rinzai tradition, you would be studying various koans. And the koan they use the most there, especially at the beginning, of course, is mu. I must tell you about mu, <laughs> possibly. And the story there is um, about Master Chao Chu, who was a great Chinese master, who gave a great talk, a long talk, about the Buddha nature. And he said, everybody, every sentient being has a Buddha nature. The Buddha said so. And then after the talk, he went back to his house. And on the way, a monk followed him, because he wanted to ask him a question, very important question. But on the way, he passed a dog. And then when he got to the master, he said, but as a dog, the Buddha nature. And Master Chao Chu said, Wu in Chinese, which means not, without, can be interpreted in many ways. And so then that becomes the koan, this Wu, this Mu, this No, this Nothing. And you kind of have to, to look into that. And then, of course, then also was in uh, Korea. And Korea was kind of quite syncretic, because it was a small country, and possibly their temperament, their culture was so, that they, in a way, rather, although it's a Linchi tradition, it's in Jason, again, it's a tradition with Kuan, but in the monastery in Korea, the Zen monastery, you'll find everybody in there. You'll find the Pure Land, you'll find chanting to Amitabha, you will find the Sutra, you will find the question. And there, the main influence, in a way, has been the Chinese influence, the early 12th century Chinese influence with Tao Hui. And Tao is one of my heroes, I would say. But he was a great Chinese master who had a lot of contact with lay people of his time, with literati, with scholars, but also with ministers, with people working for the state or working for the tax office. So, and he had all this contact with these lay people, and they would, uh, he's very famous for his letters. They would write, write him letters asking questions about the practice, and then he would answer them. There is even a book which has been translated, but is a little out of print nowadays. But in his letters, he was, he, he had to kind of answer the question, and their main question was very much, how do I practice Zen, Son, Chan, in my daily life, when my son is ill, when I have to have a complicated legal argument, how can I practice Zen? And it's him who actually very much started the way of practice that we do now, that we do today, with this question, what is this? And so he took out of the koan, which is a story. The whole story is a koan. Like the story that Stephen told you today, this is a whole koan. Out of that, he took the main important point, what is called the watao, the wadu in Korea. And so what is this? Is a watao, is a wadu. And watao literally means head of speech, before speech. And actually it points out to one of the, you, you read all these stories in the Zen tradition. You know, somebody comes and says, what is the greatest meaning of the patriarch? What is the greatest meaning of the Buddha Dharma? And the master will answer, 
the cypress in the courtyard, a piece of cake, or whatever. And you might think, well, what is the connection with the Bodhidharma, the principle of Dharma or whatever, and a piece of cake, and the cypress in the courtyard? I mean, for me, the connection is that it brings you back to something very real, very here, and not some kind of, you know, exotic, fancy, whatever idea. It's very much, what is this now? And so Tawi saw that this would be a very easy way to practice, to just take the main point of this koan, of these stories, of this encounter, and to just be with it. Because if you have this, what is this? I mean, this is quite simple. Uh, in Korean, it's igoshi mo shingo, imoko. So, I mean, it's only three syllables in, in English, too. What is this? I mean, it's not very complicated. You don't need to have a kind of a, a master degree to kind of do this. And actually, as you go about your daily life, this is the idea. They say that, in a way, the wadu, the question, walks, the question speaks, the question goes to the toilet, the question washes. So in a way, you become this question. Maybe as Stephen would say, you become this astonishment. The question brings you back to this moment of life. And about this wadu, this head of speech, I met a nun, and in a way, her experience was wonderful, because when you read these Zen stories, generally they date from long ago, 8th century, 7th century, 10th century, and if you were, you know, this is a bit far away. You're never totally sure that what they say happened. You know, it's a bit how far away. It's like a long ago legend. But I met this nun when I was in Korea. She was very respected, and everybody would tell each other her stories. This has happened to her, and that has happened to her. It was kind of like, you know, she was one of the great nuns. But she was amazingly uh, humble, very humble. But she kind of, I very much took to her, and she took to me. And so she kind of, over time, she kind of told me a few of, of these stories. But the, the most uh, striking one was the one about the wadu, about the head of speech, that... The way her life started, that she was in a very poor family. She came from very poor peasant families. They were Buddhists, but they were so poor. They could do very little. And then the mother died when she was about 16. And this was even worse. I mean, the father got totally kind of, could not do anything. The children were left to themselves. They had no money. It was really bad. So when she was 18, she thought life was really tough. I mean, you know, what's the point of it living? It's a drudgery, it's terrible, it's, oh, it's awful. Maybe I better kill myself. And then just when she thought, you know, maybe I better kill myself, she had this vision of the Himalayas. And she, had kind, of, and she kind of thought about the Buddha. She thought, well, if it's true, there is a Buddha, there is a Buddhist path. Maybe if I become a nun, you know, maybe that would be a life worth living. And so she leaves her family and she goes to a temple. But in those days, the Buddhism in Korea was a little, I mean, it was under Japanese occupation and it was very poor and it was quite difficult. There had been a lot of uh, problems, I mean, with the war and various things like that. So she ends up in this little nunnery where they kind of look at her and they really, 
Mm. There were not two keen on her. She was a little small and scrawny. And kind of, but finally, somebody took pity and said, okay, I'll take her as my, you know, as my disciple, because you have to have somebody to take you in order to get in. She said, yeah, yeah, she can be my kind of a, a grand disciple, and my disciple can take care of her time to time. So she becomes a dis grand disciple of this nun. But in that nunnery, they did not know much. So she was not taught much. And the only thing she had to do was to go and cut wood, was to go and wash clothes, and a bit like in a farm. So after two years, one day she kind of got to the mountain because she had to cut some wood. And on the way down, she fell with the wood. And, and she sat there really feeling terrible. And again, self-pity, you know. I mean, if to be a nun is that, I mean, maybe I should kill myself. <laughs> so, you know, the story reproduced itself. And luckily, luckily, around that time, a great master, a great Zen master, came to the place nearby. So everybody went to listen to him, because it was such a special occasion in those days. So she went there, she sat there, and at one point he said, the task of a monk and a nun is to practice, to cultivate a wadu, a head of speech, and to become awakened for the sake of all being. And she said, wow, that's what it's all about. I am going. So she goes back to her uh, nun, and she said, oh, I must go there. I want to practice. I want to become awakened. I need to get a wadu, a head of speech. I must go, I must go. And that kind of uh, nun said, well, you know. Well, but she, she kind of threatened to do a hunger strike. She said, OK, OK, you can go, you can go. Off you go. So off she goes, and she said it was like a pure land. She went to the place. Everybody, all the nuns were there. They were all meditating. and. They're all practicing so hard. He said, she said it was like paradise. And she was so happy. However, she did not have her own head of speech. She did not have her own wadu. So she would listen to talk and she would hear about this wadu and that wadu. She would hear about what is this. But she felt she wanted her very own. So one day, she gathered her courage to go and see the great master. So she goes to the door. She knocks at the door, and he's sitting there. So she goes, Master, Master, I want to come and ask a question. Master, Master, please, 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 I would like a head of speech. Please, please, can, can I have one? And she's like there. So she sits there with Maybe he thinks I'm too scrawny to get a good head of speech, or maybe. And you know, she's going to say a little worried. And then he doesn't move, he's just sitting there. And I finally think, oh, who's not going to give me one? I better leave. And just as she's going to leave, he kind of opened the eyes wide and he said, head of speech, where is the head? Where is the tail? What are you talking about? <laughs> and she kind of like, kind of, she said it kind of just like with this kind of mass of kind of questioning, kind of, kind of got into her. She kind of oh, ran out. And then she goes to a place to practice. And she still I did not have a head of speech. So then there was this other great monk there. So she said, oh, please, can I have one? And he said, well, if you did not get one from that great monk, you know, I mean, what can I do? And so she said, oh. So then she starts sitting. Well, you sit there three months, you know, 10 hours a day or more. You know, that's all you can do. So she sits. 
head, tail, you know. And then I should just sit there with this, in a way, this mass of perplexity of questioning. Suddenly, the, in a way, naturally, the what is this come up. And also, naturally, one day, she kind of had this revelation, we could say. She kind of suddenly burst through her. There is no head, there is no tail. Where could they be anyway? And then, slowly by herself, she, she just uh, naturally, the what is this was there. And why I'm telling you the story is that, in a way, to show that what this practice is about is very much about a little, as Stephen was saying, is discovery, a kind of certain feeling of astonishment. We generally want to get thing, certain things. You know, she wanted so much a head of speech, her very own. And actually, he gave her one, but it was not what she expected. And as she's practiced, naturally, in a way, it started to arose. And she said from then on, she just needs a what is it? So in a way, we are sitting here asking, what is it? Is there? And very much in uh, Korea, as Stephen has mentioned already, it's very much seen within mind. But in a way, because that was my encounter with this uh, question. When I arrived in Korea, and I did not know much about you know Zen masters and things like that, but you know I went to see the Zen master, and I thought you know I must kind of you know know the right answer and things like this. So you go there, you bow, and you know you're there. And then, you know, the, just the same as with Master Winang, first he, he says, you know, where do you come from? You know, how are you? You know, very nice, very friendly. And then he turns to me and he said, what is the most important thing in the whole world? So I see that I must say something, you know, spiritual, intelligent, or whatever. But think, I think, what was the most important in the whole world? So finally I say, Two people who smile at each other. So he's, he laughs and say, well, it's not bad, but there's something very <laughs> more important than that. And then he tells me the answer, of course, and that's to know my true mind, to know my true self. And then he does it in reverse. It was very funny to see to a young, another young American who had just arrived. And then he turns to him and said, what is the most frightening thing in the whole universe? And the young guy, just like me, think, 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 think. And then finally, very honestly, I so said, to be alone in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> so Master couldn't roll laughing. I said, no, no, there is something much more frightening. And it's not to know your true mind, your true self. But in a way, this word, mind, that they use, that's why I generally don't like to use it as much, because mind for us, we say mind and think. We kind of go into our kind of uh, uh, cranium in there, whatever the mind is. When for them, it's very much the character shim, the, what they ma'um in Korea, which actually means heart and mind. And this, to me, actually what they're trying to talk about, and I would rather talk about, is the Buddha nature. So we come back to this Buddha nature. That why are we sitting here? 
say, what is it? What is it? I think we have to be very careful. We are not sitting there because at the end of the week, we're all going to kind of, you know, test you, you know, and then, you know, you must have the good answer. And then if you have the best answer, then you get a gold medal. You know, and next time you come, maybe you'll sit a little higher on the cushion or something. No, what is it? Actually, this is like a tool. It's like a trigger to try to help you come back, to uncover, to recover your Buddha nature, to see it. And that's why there is this wonderful expression in uh, Korean Buddhism. It's kyon song, kyon song, songbo. Kyon song is to see the nature. So in a way, what we are asking of you when you ask the question is to that it helps you to see the nature. Because by seeing the nature, then Sambul will become a Buddha. And that's what is, I mean, in, in Korea, it's wonderful. All the time when they leave you, they say, oh, they come to see you and they say, oh, are you in peace? Are you well? And when they leave, they, they say to you, Sambul Ashipshio, please become a Buddha. Because for them, it's not something that you're going to get in 20, 100 lifetimes. It's something that really can happen anytime, any moment. So everybody, not just the monks and the nuns, the lay people would wish each other, some Buddha Shipshu, please become a Buddha. And because, and why? Seeing the nature make us become a Buddha. And I think that's why we have to be careful when we're sitting here asking, what is this? Because I was trying to find a simile. We are sitting here asking what is it in order, in a way, to reveal the nature, to let the nature appear, our Buddha nature, just to be there. But I think, I, I suddenly, I don't know if you will find it the right simile, I was thinking maybe, isn't it? Like you have somebody, you could see yourself with your, what is this? Like a, a fisherman. You're sitting on the side of the river with your kind of cane, you kind of, you know, look around, you can look nothing. In the same way, we're sitting here. What is this? What is this? And then, if you become a little quiet, ha, ha, you know, the nature might appear. The fish, I might get a fish. But then you're there, the fisherman is there, and he gets a fish. But then, if we do like the, in a way, you get the fish, and then he thinks, wow, I've got a fish. Isn't it amazing? Amazing, this fish, you know? But if you put the fish there, well, after a while, it starts to stink, doesn't it? No? So what, what are the fishermen to do? I mean, I, I mean, unless he puts it back because he's vegetarian, he eats it. And actually, by eating the fish, in a way, the fish becomes something else. Because I think often in the Zen tradition, there is so much this idea that you, you must be awakened, you must have satori, you go... And I think we feel that we're supposed to get something. How often have I sat, you know, on these retreats and you kind of, you sing there, you know, what is it, what is it? You know, you feel kind of, you know, it's very clear, it's very quiet, and then you kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes, because you, you're expecting something. And I think that's why one has to be very careful that this Buddha nature, is not a thing, is not something. Actually, for me, I think it's more 
the Buddha nature is what I would call a creative spaciousness. It's kind of, it is with us already. As we sit here, we are not trying to go, I mean, we are not like the fishermen going to look for a fish outside of ourselves. The fish is already in there. We already, the fish, fishermen, everything is already in there. And so we are, we, we're not really looking for something. But in a way, we feel like we're looking for something because we seem to have lost something. But it's more because, in a way, we are screened. Because at, I'm sure if you reflect, all of you have had times where, in a way, I would say you were in this flowing, creative spaciousness, where you were not special. You are not floating over the ground. You are not with kind of, you know, lights around you. But within yourself and outside. So it, I think we have to be very careful with this awakening, this seeing, this nature. It's not like I see something inside. It's just a way to describe something. I think it's more something is there, something which is more spacious, which is more flowing. And so you could do some very ordinary things. And actually, this is just the nature expressing itself. It's not you doing something and being very, because I think one of the great obstacles to just nature, our nature being there as it can be and as it has been, is identification with small part of our conditions. I think we, we kind of so quickly stick to conditions. And totally limit and restrict ourselves to that. When I think by trying to practice to meditate, we try to come to this experience of just being with life and responding to life appropriately. And for example, when I was a nun, Master, I mean, when you become a nun, you generally get a name. And Master Kuzan gave me a name. And my name, I did not keep it because it kind of sounded a bit funny in, uh, outside of Korea, was Song Il. I was Song Il. And what does it mean? Song actually means nature. So this Buddha nature. And Il actually can mean two things, which, is, which I think actually demonstrate actually what the Buddha nature is about. So ill can mean the sun, S-U-N. So song ill then would mean the sun of the nature. And I think there what Master Kuzan was trying to sh show me, because generally he gives a name to inspire you. There was this monk who used to speak nonstop, and he called him silence. <laughs> so, so, so with this name, song ill, what was it showing me? You know, is that the nature is illuminated, is radiated, is brilliant. That all of us have that capacity, have it in us. It's not something you need to fabricate. It's in a way, it's something we need to allow. And I think the practice is about just dissolving the wall that stops this from being totally there. Because I think it's already there. 
I think it's already in a way the illumination, the radiation is already there, but it's kind of like there is all this little hole. It's like if you had a piece of paper with lots of holes, then the light would go through it, but in kind of just little kind of beam. When if the paper is gone, then the light can be in a way like the sun spreads everywhere. The sun doesn't say, I don't want to shine on that one, forget it. He shines everybody. And the second translation of ill can also mean day. So it can mean nature, day by day, nature daily. In a way, showing me that the nature can be there, the seeing of the nature, the living of the nature, the being the nature, is every day, is daily, is not in special circumstances, in special mountain or special hermitage. But this was my, my, I used to spend lots of time, I don't know if you've done this today, but when I started meditating in Korea, I used to spend so much time. I was supposed to do my what is it? And actually I was thinking, yes, I'm going to go to a hermitage, and then I'm going to practice so hard, then I'm going to become enlightened, then I'm going to save everybody, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, you know, I would go have these kind of, you know, just have various kind of uh, little kind of uh, ideas, and I used to kind of... Till one day I realized I was daydreaming about meditation. I was not doing anything. I was not questioning anything. I was just spacing out. Because of this idea that, in a way, some other special time. But there is no special time. Or it's a special time all the time. Any moment, every second that we are washing the dishes, that we are sitting here having an amazing insight, that we are having trouble on the loop, whatever. The nature is there. And at the same time, we have to be careful because you might be sitting here. I'm giving you this talk, trying to say that the nature is radiating, illuminating, it's bright, it's there, it's yours. And then you sit there, and it's all dark, and it's all gloomy. And you think, well, maybe other people have got it, but mine is really teeny, teeny, weeny, weeny, weeny. You know, when is it going to come up? And I think then we have to be careful to think that somebody might have bigger one, that somebody might have smaller one. I think we all have the same one. You know, it's all the same. And sometimes it's more there and sometimes less, very much according to how much screen, how much grasping, how much identification we have. Because if we reflect on the story of Angulimala, some of you might have heard the story, there was at the time of the Buddha, there was this uh, robber, very famous robber and murderer. He kind of kept murdering people and kind of adding the, it was called the uh, finger necklace, because he has a necklace with all the fingers of the people he had killed. And then he, he heard about the Buddha. He thought, oh, that would be great to have the Buddha fingers, you know, on my necklace. And I like that. You know, I'm going to get it. And so he kind of, you know, asked where is the Buddha. And he heard, oh, yes, the Buddha was there. So he goes there. And then he sees a Buddha walking on a path. And he says, ah, oh, I'm going to get it. You know, he's got no arms. He's got, you know, he's just got his robe. He's bald. Well, it should be easy to get him. You know, I'm going to get his finger. So he runs, run, 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 run. And he runs, and he runs. And the Buddha walks very slowly, very slowly. And Angulimala runs, runs, runs. And he never gets there. And so this kind of, you know, he runs, runs, Buddha walks very slowly, and he, I 
we get there. So finally, he's totally exhausted. Angulima is sort of running, running, nothing is happening. And finally, in distress, he says, Buddha, how come I can't get you? Stop! You know, so I can get you back. How come I can't get to you? You walk slow, I walk fast. And the Buddha says, Angulimala, I have stopped a long time ago. I have stopped these three poisons of anger, desire, and ignorance. If you just let go of this, you will stop too, and you will be able to reach me. And at that moment, Angulimala let go of all his hatred, desire, and ignorance. And he was able to touch Buddha, and he became a monk. So I presume that if he could do it, maybe you too can do it. Why not? And so, in a way, what is the questioning about? The questioning about is about kind of, in a way, helping you to break through all this idea like Angulimala thinking, you know, I am this great bandit. You know, I kill people. And he just was this, that's all what he saw, that he was just a killer, a murderer. And everybody saw the same. He was just a killer, a murderer. And that's why after he became a monk, he, he did have a bit of trouble going begging. <laughs> it was a bit troublesome. Because they still identified him as being a murderer. When for him, it was gone. Because he, he, he realized that was not what he was. There was more to him than that. And in a way, I think that's why this questioning, what is interesting for me in this practice, is that it gives some energy. There is a certain kind of energy it requires of us. Because sometimes we have a tendency, I mean, the breath is very good. Nothing against the breath. But we wash the breath and we just... And why, why, I am I, why am I not changing? Why am I, you know, my mind is very peaceful. I sit in meditation, I'm so peaceful. Then I go home and I shout at my wife. What's the problem? You know, my wife is wrong. No, 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 that's not the problem, I would say. But why? So is, is that the hardest to, to be concentrated? I know you were going to tell me this is not so. But I think to concentrate the mind is relatively easy things to do. In small bit, not for 10, hour, 10 hours a day, but in small bit, you can do it. Any of us can do that. But what is also essential, and I think that's why, in a way, we reconnect us with our Buddha nature, is the inquiry, is the questioning, is this kind of, I've, in this questioning, we're actually using the nature the Buddha nature. But I think that's why this is a great gift. That can be a great gift, this questioning. What is this? Actually, it's rekindling the energy, the illuminating nature of the nature. That's what we are doing. I mean, I'm sure it might not seem obvious, but all the time, it's interesting how it makes the mind more flexible, more open. And I think this is what this practice for me is very much about, about cultivating openness. Because in a way, when you say, what is this? You could say, you have no idea what you're doing. You're just, what is it? What is this? In a way, you're opening yourself 
again, this tendency we have to want to be certain. This is like this. I am like this. They are like that. And I am not going to change, even if it's painful. And this is an interesting one, isn't it? You know? When actually this, what is this? This questioning. It's saying, why? What is this? To, and he's not saying to, as Stephen said, to any specific thing. But he's trying to cultivate a mind which opens itself to the moment, to the experience, to what is going on in this moment. And in that way, I think it, it rekindles, it kind of allows a kind of creative spaciousness to come in. So this Buddha nature is not a thing. It's kind of, you cannot describe it. It's just this, the best I can say, this creative spaciousness. And that's what was interesting when I was in, uh, in Korea, is that Master Kuzan would, uh, I mean, after a while, we kind of got to know each other kind of well. And I used to be sometimes his attendant, and I would translate letters and do things for him. And then sometimes he would call me and say, please come. I need some button to be sold. So I would say, sure, sure, I'll come and sew your button. And before I went, I might have kind of I've been really kind of upset about somebody did something, and you know, although we're supposed to be Buddhist meditating, what is it? You see it kind of, mm -hmm. and so I would go there, you know, I've got to sew this button. And at the back of my mind, there was, you know, this storyline, you know, they did this, I did that. And then I would go there, bow to him as was a custom, and then I would sew the button. And then I would go back to my place, and then I would feel strangely light. And I would kind of think, what was my problem before I left? And I would try to kind of find it. And I could not really find it. There was just spaciousness. And I think it's not that Master Cousin was special. If you met him, he was just a small little man. But I think because, you know, he had seen his nature, he had cultivated his nature, there was no stickiness. So that when you were with him, a lot of the time, your stickiness could not stick. And I think, in a way, that's what we're trying to, to do with this questioning. In a way, this questioning is a tool to unstick us. So, voila. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.